0: MURDER! Sorry, that was dumb. This is not a true crime podcast. It's a history podcast. But history has more than its fair share of murder, crime, and unsolved mysteries. And this particular case, known sometimes as the Barnes Mystery or the Richmond Murder, was huge in its day, way back in 1879. It also weirdly involves David Attenborough, beloved English naturalist known for his narration of numerous educational nature documentaries, but not for another 130 years or so. So I had to cover it. That'll all make more sense later. The murder of Julia Martha Thomas by her maid, a woman named Kate Webster, was sensational when it occurred, and still is, even by today's standards, pretty grisly. So if you like murder mysteries, historical crime, and or eccentric Victorians, you'll probably like this episode. Though fair warning, there are some unsavory bits. I will give you a heads up before it gets extra bloody, but just know that things get pretty gross. Before we start, huge shout out to Simon and Zachary, my newest patrons. You are both the stuff history podcasts are made of. Now, hold on to your head and get ready for a Victorian murder. It'll be bloody good. I'm your host, Kristen Robine-Terpstra, and this is the History Cache. Let's have a look inside. Kate Webster is a name that no one in 1879 would have believed belonged to a murderer. The fact that a woman committed a murder and was able to dispose of a body in a very physical way threw a wrench into the rigid Victorian ideas of womanhood. Not only that, Kate was Irish and poor. She was in a whole class beneath her employer and eventual victim, Julia Martha Thomas. And at this point in time, there was a lot of anti-Irish sentiment in Victorian England, especially when it came to the Irish working class. The sensationalism of this case was used to reinforce that mentality, and that makes digging through sources almost 150 years after the fact difficult, because separating the facts from the sensational hype isn't always a clear-cut process. The press certainly painted Kate Webster as diabolical and naturally prone to crime. She did have a track record. Kate Webster was born Kate Lawler in Killiney, County, Wexford, Ireland, probably in 1849. She is sometimes referred to as Catherine. After the murder, she was described in the Daily Telegraph as a quote, tall, strongly made woman of about five feet, five inches in height with sallow and much freckled complexion and large prominent teeth. Not the most flattering description. Not a lot is known about Kate's early life. According to the Irish Post, her life of crime began early. When she was 15, she went to prison for larceny, or theft. After that, she continued to steal until she had enough money for a ticket to Liverpool, which she purchased and used in 1867. A year later, in 1868, she was sentenced to four years of penal servitude, which is unpaid labor, again for larceny. By this point, she was going by the name Kate Webster. She claimed she had married a sea captain by the name of Webster and had four children with him. She also claimed that her husband and all of their children died. Although at this time, Kate would have only been in her 20s, that wasn't a completely unbelievable story as infant mortality rates were much higher back then. However, there is no surviving evidence of a marriage to a Captain Webster or of these four children, so it's definitely possible that Sea Captain Webster and their four children never actually existed. When Kate was released from prison in January of 1872, she moved to London, where she worked as a cleaner and a maid. It was a way to make a living, but a meager one at best. She worked as a cook and a housekeeper for a Captain Woolbest, and while under his employ, met a man named Strong. It's said that she lived with Strong for a time, and she eventually became pregnant, giving birth to their son in April of 1874. Promptly after the birth, Strong disappeared, wanting nothing to do with the child or with Kate. Now, Kate had another mouth to feed, and was on her own once again. This was before social security, so money was even tighter for her now. She reverted to doing what she knew how to do and began stealing again, and her heists became more complicated than picking pockets or lifting a few trinkets here and there. She would rent rooms out in boarding houses, sell everything of value inside the room, then flee. This eventually caught up with her when she was convicted of 36 counts of larceny in May of 1875. She spent 18 months in Wandsworth Prison. After she was released, she was soon arrested again for the same crime and sentenced to another year in 1877. Afterwards, she continued finding work as a maid, eventually coming under the employ of Julia Martha Thomas. Julia was a former schoolteacher and was twice widowed by the time she reached her 50s. She is described as being a bit eccentric, but that could just be a stigma attributed to her because she was a woman living on her own. She was living a comfortable, though not extravagantly wealthy life, having inherited sums sizable enough from both her husbands to live out her days in Richmond, which even today is one of the wealthiest boroughs in London. It's extremely unlikely that Julia Martha Thomas knew how checkered Kate's past was, or just how much time she had spent in prison. At first, things seemed to work well, Webster saying later that she thought Mrs. Thomas was a nice old lady. Fifty is not old. But Kate liked to drink and found herself at a pub called The Hole in the Wall quite often. This was something that Julia Thomas did not like. It also seems that Kate wasn't attentive when it came to her job, at least by the standards of Julia Thomas. Kate claimed that Julia was too strict and that she would point out places where she would say Kate didn't clean. The relationship between the two women became increasingly agitated until Mrs. Thomas decided it was finally time to fire Kate. We know this happened on February 28, 1879, because Julia wrote in her journal that night that she, quote, gave Catherine warning to leave. Kate asked Julia to extend her employment just a few more days through March 2nd. She agreed, which would turn out to be a fatal mistake. Sundays were half-days for Kate. She was allowed to do whatever she wanted with her day as long as she returned in time to help Julia get ready for her evening church service on Sundays. On this particular Sunday, which was March 2nd, Kate's last day of employment, Kate showed up late. She had been drinking at the pub again. This irked Julia, and the two argued. Julia Thomas made it to the church service in a reportedly agitated state. It was the last time she would ever be seen in public alive. What happened next shocked the Victorian world and made Kate Webster one of the most hated women in England. What happened next was murder. This is the part where I warn you that things are going to get disturbing. Kate was still in the house when Julia came home from church that evening. According to Kate's later confession, Julia went upstairs after returning home, and the two of them began to argue again. The argument became increasingly heated. Kate had a history of theft and had even done extensive time for it, but she had never, as far as we know, been convicted of a violent crime. Did she intend to murder Julia Thomas after she came home? That's a question only Kate Webster knew the answer to, but given the fact that until now we don't see any violence in Kate's record, it's possible this was a crime of passion. Or it was a poorly planned attempt at one big heist, one that would set her and her sum up for some time. Either way, the result was a bloody end for Julia Martha Thomas. During their argument, Kate flew into a rage and, according to her confession, threw Julia down the stairs. This fall did not kill her. Kate knew she had just attacked a woman above her station. Kate was Irish, working class, and had a criminal record. She no doubt knew that this would mean a jail sentence, possibly for some years. She did not want to go back to prison. So she went to where julia thomas was lying on the floor wrapped her hands around the woman's neck and strangled her to death before she could scream kate described the scene in her confession quote mrs thomas came in and went upstairs i went up after her and we had an argument which ripened into a quarrel and in the height of my anger and rage i threw her from the top of the stairs to the ground floor she had a heavy fall and i became agitated at what had occurred Lost all control of myself, and to prevent her screaming and getting me into trouble, I caught her by the throat, and in the struggle, she was choked, and I threw her on the floor. The next-door neighbor, Mrs. Ives, heard Julia fall, but didn't think anything of it, and so did nothing. Now, Kate had a huge problem. She had to get rid of a body. She could have fled, taken her son, grabbed what she could from Julia's house, and headed back to Ireland— or out of London, at least. But that's not what she did. Perhaps she thought fleeing wouldn't afford her enough time for a getaway, or maybe the wheels in her head started turning, and she began to see this as a sort of unexpected, terrible opportunity. Kate would stay in Julia Thomas' house for weeks. She had a plan, at least part of one, but first, she needed to dispose of the body. And that is where things get Extra bloody. Welcome to Thugs and Miracles, the podcast looking back at 1,400 years of French history, from the fall of the Western Roman Empire to the fall of the guillotine. Join me, Benjamin Bernier, as we meet the pagans left behind by Rome, the bishops martyred to convert them. The Islamic armies and the Danish invaders looking to conquer them. The kings who rose to lead and the queens who guided and controlled these kings. TNM offers an insight into stories you may never have heard of and a fresh way of thinking about many of those that you have. So please, come check us out. We're available at all the same places you can find History Cash and look forward to having you join us for a look at a period of time dominated by thugs and miracles. Was in London and couldn't exactly throw the body of a well-to-do woman out into the street, but she also couldn't leave it anywhere in the house. So she set about dismembering Julia piece by piece. She used a razor to cut off her head. This must have not only been difficult, but extremely gory. A razor isn't exactly something you can use to chop things, so it would have taken a lot of slicing to remove Julia's head. To make things easier on herself, Kate used a meat saw and a carving knife to cut the rest of the body into pieces. Although Kate was an experienced thief, she had not, until now, been a murderer, and she stated later how overwhelmed she became, not only because the sight of cutting up another human being into pieces was sickening, but also because of the smell. Eventually, she would have to take all of those pieces and dispose of them elsewhere, and Kate took precautions to make sure no one could identify the body. She cut open the stomach and burned the contents, as well as Julia's organs and intestines. Later, the next-door neighbor, Mrs. Ives, would describe noticing a strange smell coming from next door. That smell was the burning innards of her neighbor, But neither this strange smell nor the loud crash earlier were enough for Mrs. Ives to raise any alarm or bother checking on her neighbor. Kate put the body parts into a large copper pot that was used for laundry and boiled them. There is some lore that says Kate took the fat drippings from Julia's body and fed them to a couple of local children and tried selling the rest as lard at the local pub neither of those stories has ever been substantiated with any actual evidence. It wasn't unlike Kate Webster to try and financially gain from others' misfortune, but the selling fat and feeding it to children part of the story can probably be chalked up to apocryphal sensationalism. After the innards were burned and the rest of Julia's body was boiled, Kate found a large bag and a box. She was able to stuff all the body parts into these, except for Julia's head and one of her feet that she just couldn't manage to squeeze in. The foot she threw onto a pile of garbage or manure about three miles away in Twickenham. She never revealed what she did with the head. More on that later. Over the next few days, Kate continued to clean the house and wash Julia Thomas's clothes in order to avoid suspicion and create a facade of normalcy. I wonder if Kate would have gotten away with murder if she had simply fled. Maybe not, but she probably would have had a better chance of a getaway. Instead, she lied and tried making money by selling all of Julia Thomas's things. It was her same old M.O. Move in, sell everything, and move out. Only this time, she had to dispose of a body first. She started calling herself Mrs. Thomas, taking on the identity of the woman she had just dismembered, boiled, and burned. She met with an old friend of hers named Henry Porter, a former neighbor she had known from some years back. She needed someone to broker all the items from Julia's house that she was about to try and sell. Porter had no idea the items were not really Kate's. She told him that she had married a man named Thomas who had since passed away, hence the new surname, and that a relative, an aunt, had recently died and left her everything. She told him she wanted him to help her sell all of her deceased aunt's possessions. She met Henry Porter and his son Robert at the hole in the wall, bought them food and drink, and they both noticed that she carried a bag and a box with her. They had even helped her carry them as they walked to the pub and were surprised that they were so heavy. The two men had no idea they were eating dinner next to a dismembered corpse or with the murderer that had killed and stolen her identity. Kate excused herself from dinner briefly, saying she was heading out to meet a friend who lived close to the pub. Henry and Robert waited and drank, and when Kate returned, they noticed the heavy bag she had brought with her was gone. She still had her box, however, and she asked Robert to help her carry it to Richmond Bridge, where Kate said a friend was coming to pick her up. Robert and Kate said their goodbyes. As Robert walked away, he heard the sound of a splash as Kate heaved the rest of Julia Thomas into the River Thames. As Robert walked home, he could never have guessed that he had just accidentally helped dispose of a body. The next day, the box was found after it had floated down the river for several miles, and the horrendous contents were discovered. The police were called and investigated. They could determine that the remains belonged to a woman and that they had been boiled, but without the head, they could not identify the body. Murder was a little bit easier to get away with in 1879. Kate began wearing Julia Thomas's clothes and jewelry, which just makes me shudder. The audacity to steal the identity of your victim and live in their house is just next-level murdery. Her friend Henry Porter introduced her to a Mr. John Church, who agreed to help Kate sell the contents of Julia's house, which he thought belonged to Kate, or the new Mrs. Thomas. The body in the box made the papers, and the incident began being called the Barnes Mystery, as the remains had been found at the Barnes Railway Bridge. By now, Julia's foot had also been found on the garbage heap where Kate had thrown it, and it was assumed it belonged to the body from the box that was missing a foot. But there was still nothing to connect the body with Julia Thomas, and they were still missing a head, which meant in 1879 that they couldn't make a positive identification. On May 18th, 16 days after the murder, the horse and cart from John Church arrived to collect Julia's things. It was at this point, finally, when all of Julia Thomas's things were being carried away from her house, that her neighbor Mrs. Ives became suspicious. Super late, Mrs. Ives. Mrs. Ives asked the delivery man who had ordered all of Mrs. Thomas's things to be removed. He simply replied, Mrs. Thomas, and pointed to Kate, who Mrs. Ives knew was not the real Mrs. Thomas. Immediately, Kate knew she had been caught. She left in a hurry, took her son, and fled back to Ireland. Mr. Church was rather surprised to discover he had been deceived, and the police were called. Julia's diary was recovered. Inspectors found charred bones in the kitchen grate, blood stains that showed signs of cleaning, fat behind the copper pot where Kate had boiled the body, and the instruments Kate used to dismember her victim. Kate Webster was immediately a suspect, and it wasn't too difficult to ascertain that she had fled to Ireland. This is because she left a piece of paper in Julia's house with her Irish address on it. Not the brightest move. She was found at her uncle's farm in Killany and arrested on March 29, 1879. The story blew up. Even on her way from her uncle's farm to Dublin, crowds jeered at her along the road. Kate Webster became famous overnight and was instantly hated. The trial, set for July 2nd, was a huge spectacle. Everyone wanted to see the murderous maid of Richmond who had boiled her mistress. The courtroom was so crowded that people spewed out onto the grounds outside of the courthouse, straining to hear the proceedings and subsequent verdict. The murder of Julia Martha Thomas was so famous that even the future king and crown prince of Sweden, future Gustav V, showed up to watch the trial. Kate Webster pleaded not guilty and even tried implicating others in the crime. She accused Henry Porter and John Church, the two men she had tricked into helping her sell Julia's things. This accusation was short-lived, as both of them had solid alibis. She accused Mr. Strong, the father of her child, as having driven her to murder, but this also came to nothing. Kate's criminal record plus the evidence stacked against her were too great for her to implicate anyone else successfully. Many witnesses took the stand, One was a hatmaker named Maria Durden. She told the court that Kate Webster had visited her days before the murder, claiming that Kate said she was going to sell the property left to her by her aunt. Since this was well before the murder of Julia Thomas, many inferred this meant it had been premeditated. The trial lasted for six days. It took the jury a little over one hour to find her guilty. The sentence for murder was death by hanging. Kate told the court after the verdict that she was pregnant. If true, this would have meant avoiding being hanged, at least for a time. She was inspected by, quote, a jury of matrons who were employed for this very reason, and they declared that she was not what they called quick with child. She was sentenced to hang for the murder of Julia Thomas on July 29, 1879. The night before, when it was clear there would be no clemency, she finally confessed to the murder and said that she had acted alone. It's said that she told her priest, quote, I alone committed the murder of Mrs. Thomas. Kate Webster was set to be executed at Wandsworth Prison, originally called the Surrey House of Correction. The interior walls would have been a familiar sight as she had served time there for larceny. Death sentences were carried out here between 1878 and 1961. During that span of time, 135 people were executed there, mostly for murder, though there were a few spies hanged in the 20th century. Kate Webster was the second person and only woman ever hanged at Wandsworth. She was executed July 29, 1879. Her body was placed in a grave on prison grounds, where it remains to this day. Before she was interred, a wax likeness of her head was created so it could be placed in Madame Tussaud's Wax Museum in London. The wax head of Kate Webster was displayed in Madame Tussaud's extremely popular Chamber of Horrors for nearly six decades, a testament to how sensational Kate's murder of Julia Martha Thomas had become. Speaking of heads, just what became of Julia Thomas's? It turns out Kate hid the severed head of her victim well. It was presumed that it had been lost to history, perhaps buried under a century and a half's worth of sediment in the Thames, or rotted away in a garbage heap somewhere long gone. Then, in 2009, something weird happened. David Attenborough, titan of narration and nature documentaries, had been living almost exactly where the murder took place since the 1950s. In 2009, he bought the vacant pub next door. This had been the hole in the wall the pub frequently visited by Kate Webster. David had plans to extend his garden out into the space where the pub had been. In 2010, while his contractors were excavating the site, they spotted something peculiar. It was a dark, circular object that, upon closer inspection, turned out to be a human skull. It was missing teeth and bore fracture marks. It also contained low collagen levels, something that happens after bone is boiled. Radiocarbon dating confirmed that the skull belonged to a woman in her 50s who had lived at the time of the murder, and it was found laying atop a layer of Victorian tiles. Coroner Allison Thompson determined after inspection that the injuries found on the skull were consistent with having been thrown down the stairs. She determined the cause of death to be unlawful killing, which means murder. Thompson determined that, given the overwhelming evidence, the skull did indeed belong to Julia Martha Thomas. Kate had buried Julia's severed head underneath the stables of the pub, and it took us 131 years to find it. In David Attenborough's garden. I love history so much. Chief Superintendent Clive Chalk, Borough Commander of Richmond, said, quote, This is a fascinating case and a good example of how good old-fashioned detective work, historical records, and technological advances came together to solve the Barnes mystery. Closure feels good, doesn't it? At the time of the trial and afterwards, street ballads were written about the murder. Street ballads were set to the tunes of popular songs and sung as parodies. Sort of a historical version of Weird Al. And I want to leave you with one written by an H. Such after the trial. It goes like this. The terrible crime at Richmond at last on Catherine Webster now has been cast. Tried and found guilty, she is sentenced to die. From the strong hand of justice, she cannot fly. She has tried all excuses, but of no avail. About this murder, she's told many tales. She has tried to throw blame on others as well. But with all her cunning, at last she has fell that does it for this episode on the murder of julia martha thomas perpetrated by the notorious kate webster i hope you enjoyed it it grossed me out a little bit as i'm not a true crime podcaster but history is gross sometimes i'll be back again in three weeks with more history for you in the meantime, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you can email me at Podcast at gmail.com. You can find me on both Twitter and Instagram. If you'd like to help support the show, you can check out my Patreon page at patreon.com slash historycashpodcast, or you can make a one-time donation. You can access the link for that on the website under the support tab. That website is historycashpodcast.podbean.com. Thank you so much for listening. Every download counts, and you have helped an independent podcast shine just a little bit brighter in the unending ocean of podcasts that are out there. I truly appreciate your listening. Sound effects and background music were licensed through Envato Elements, theme song from Audio Jungle. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay smart. And until we meet again, go make some history.